0: In our world, there is magic in the darkness. Sorcery and incantations which bring us closer to the essence of the night. Come enter our black magic shop. Where we will conjure up tales to frighten and disturb. This journey will be spellbinding. Welcome visitors to the No Sleep Magic Shop, I'm your proprietor, David Cummings. This week we conjure spells for you about uncovering the mysteries found in the small clues around us. As season 14 is in full swing now I want to make quick mention of our new season pass system we're using. I confess I should have made mention of it sooner and I do apologize to those fans who were caught off guard. Basically, Season Pass 14 will be almost exactly like previous Season Passes in terms of the content we'll provide, but we're moving from our previous Nanocast system to a fresh new system called Glow. Glow, like the old system, will handle the payment and provide our members with an RSS feed, and now it will be a secure and stable feed which will work seamlessly in any podcast app or RSS reader. We're finding that almost everyone who has signed up through the new glow system loves how quick and easy it is. So don't be alarmed if you don't see Season Pass 14 in your previous members page, or if you have questions about how to use it. Send us an email at admin at thenosleeppodcast.com and we'll make sure you're able to listen to or download the episodes as easily as you've always done. So, whether you're a Season Pass member or a follower of our free episodes, we're glad you're with us for Season 14. Now, close your eyes and embrace the magic. In our first tale, we meet a man suffering from a mysterious illness. Not knowing what's wrong with you can be very frustrating. Not knowing why there's a mysterious person monitoring you can be downright eerie. But in this tale, shared with us by author Elias Witherow, We learn that even in matters of health, sometimes it's better not to know what ails you. Performing this tale are Jeff Clement and Jesse Cornett. So the seconds are ticking away for this patient, and with each passing moment his stalker gets closer. And that's because he has doomsday disease.
1: for it's there again I can hear it walking down the hall it's growing impatient I think whatever it is I'm lying in bed the door is open and I can hear it lumbering through the darkness even though I haven't seen it I know it's big how do I know this because it's footfalls sound like thunder against the hardwood floor as I feel the vibrations of its movements tremble up the bedposts and shake this fragile frame. I want to get up and confront this stalker, this late-night intruder, but the sickness has me in its claws. My fever is getting worse, and tonight I can barely think straight. My forehead is thick with sweat, and the sheets beneath my shivering body are soaked through. I'm freezing and my hair is damp against the pillow. I clutch my stomach, groaning as the intruder storms down the hall and into the bathroom. I can hear it shuffling through the medical cabinet. I want to call out to it, to scream at it. But my throat is tight with exhaustion and I can't seem to find the strength to summon the words. I reach for my glass of water on the nightstand, and my fingers find its cool edges. To my dismay, the glass is empty. My parched lips smash together, a filmy meeting that pulls at my flesh. My hands go to my stomach. I clutch my ribs and moan once again feels like my insides have ruptured and fire is pouring into my guts. Why won't this virus leave me? Or whatever it is. As if on cue, the unseen visitor in my house begins to thump back down the hall toward my bedroom. I wonder if I'll get to see it tonight. I crane my head up off the pillow and stare out into the blank hallway. I should have left a light on. The gloom echoes as the footsteps draw nearer to the open door. Sweat rolls down my sickly face and I desperately want a drink of water. My stomach heaves suddenly and I cry out. I wrap my arms around myself and curl up into a ball. I lie there, pitifully, as the cramps contract my torso. I grit my teeth and exhale painfully. It feels as if I'm dying. Like my guts are vomiting. Like something is growing inside of me. Of course, that's ridiculous and I remind myself of this fact. The footsteps have moved past the door and I've missed it again. Whatever is out there, stalking my home remains a mystery. Somewhere in my addled mind, I knew I should be more concerned about this strange nighttime visitor. But the pain of sickness has dulled my concern to a blunt edge. Please make it stop. Another wave of nauseous discomfort twists my insides. It feels like I've been stabbed with the biggest knife in the world. Shut the fuck up! I scream at the footsteps, now lurking toward the other end of the house. I immediately regret my outburst as an explosion of dizziness rattles my vision. I lean heavily back into my pillow and take concentrated breaths. I squeeze my eyes shut and count to ten. Beads of syrupy sweat drool down the sides of my face. I know I can't afford another outburst like that without risk of passing out. And I don't want to do that because of those goddamn footsteps. Because through the haze of the misery, I fear them. Get out of my house. Leave me alone. I open my eyes in the darkness. I pull off the covers, suddenly sweltering hot. The footsteps were returning. Determined to see what the source is... I propped myself up on my elbows, fighting against the biting discomfort in my stomach. Three nights of this shit. Just what the hell was stalking the hallways? Before, I was convinced it was some hallucination brought on by the overwhelming sickness and had chosen to ignore the creaking floorboards. But three consecutive nights in a row had changed my mind. Something was really in here with me. Something just beyond the veil of shadow of my bedroom door. And tonight, I would see it. My stomach rolled with agony. None of this was right. Night five. I didn't see anything last night. The thing... Whatever it is, never recrossed my bedroom door. Maybe it will tonight. If it comes back. What am I saying? Of course it will. How do I know this? Because the pain in my stomach's gotten worse. And my uninvited intruder had arrived at the outset of all of this. I'm gonna try and get up today, despite the pain. Just the thought is almost enough to bring tears to my eyes. I'm not looking forward to how that's going to feel, but I need water. I need to refill my glass. I should probably eat something as well, but I don't think I'll be able to keep anything down. My gut shudders and I feel a cramp starting to develop just below my lower ribs. I brace myself for the inevitable agony and wait. It arrives without mercy. Oh, Christ! I shudder, I moan, and then finally cry. It takes a full 30 seconds to pass. It leaves me gasping for air. Whatever this is, it's getting worse. I need to sleep. If I'm going to try to get up later, then I'm going to need as much energy as I can. So for now, I sleep. The visitor is back. I can hear it downstairs, in the kitchen. Now it's coming up the stairs. I need to get up. But I don't think I want to if that thing is going to be wandering in my hallways tonight. I shouldn't have slept so long. God, but I'm thirsty. Something feels wrong with my ribs. I feel bloated. I feel like I've eaten and eaten and eaten. And yet, there is simply not enough room in my body for the sensation. And yet, I'm starving. The thing is walking down the hallway toward me. I don't even try to look up at it. What good will it do if I know the source? It won't take my sickness away. I turn my head to the side and stare at the wall. And then, without warning, I sense something standing in the doorway, looking at me. Slowly, I turn to confront the intruder Fear settles around me and my eyes go wide as I cast them onto the figure looking down upon me It is completely colorless not transparent but totally without color My mind kept trying to associate a shade to the form but it simply could not it filled the doorway, but it was not a broad thing. It was tall. Its figure shifts like moving water, and yet I can make out arms and a pair of thin legs. Its head is just a blob, an ever-contorting distortion of undetermined shape. It hosts no eyes, no mouth, no lips, no features, nothing. It is like a colorless ghost composed of alien compost. What do you want? The thing does not move. What the fuck do you want? I prop myself up. Immediately, my body revolts, and I collapse back onto my pillow, moaning as my torso pulsates with pain. It feels like a boulder is being shoved down my chest and into my gut. Blinking sweat away, I look toward the doorway again. The thing utters a sound words. Its voice is smooth and calm, almost pleasant. To talk. To talk. How much time do we have left? And then it leaves, thudding dully back down the hall, leaving me in confused hysteria. What are you? Darkness takes me. Night six. I threw up earlier. I didn't even feel it coming. I simply leaned over the bed and discarded a mouthful of hot bile. It poured from my nose and throat like acid and my face ignited against the onslaught. The pain was enough to get me to stand and fetch water from the bathroom sink. It took me the better part of an hour to do so. Wave after wave of agony rocked my body as I shuffled toward my destination. I could hear the strange intruder behind me, down the hall, but I didn't care enough to look. I just had to get some water. When I finally made it to the sink, I practically collapsed onto it. I fumbled for the knob and turned it on. Almost crying with relief, I lowered my chapped lips and greedily lapped at the cold stream. It was the most wonderful thing I've ever tasted. When I had consumed my fill... I realized I'd forgotten to take my glass with me. The thought of returning to the bathroom at a later time for more water made me want to weep. So wincing, I lowered my aching body into the bathtub. I was shivering so hard by the time I did so that my teeth began to chatter. I clawed for the knob and flipped it. Water poured down over me in the shower head. The first 30 seconds were frigid hell before the heat came, and when it did, I thought I would die of euphoria. I closed my eyes, fully clothed, and let the fabric soak through, warming me. At some point, I looked up through the stream. My nighttime visitor was watching me from the bathroom door. It was almost invisible through the rising vapors. Its long body swayed slightly and its head dipped one way and then the other. A sharp, stabbing sensation filled my stomach suddenly and I clutched it screaming. Something rolled inside of me and then expanded. It was the most unpleasant feeling I have ever suffered. I felt my insides pop, and then something sharp collided with the inside of my lower rib cage. an angular edge that I could physically see, jutting out and stretching my skin. I clawed at the odd, protruding shape in my body. Stop it! Stop doing this to me! Leave me alone! The intruder didn't move from the doorway it spoke again
2: one day this world will die just like all the others but when tell me just tell me
1: and all of this will be over i writhed beneath the tide of hot water what the hell are you talking about what are you what are you the shimmering shape didn't respond. It just watched with eyes that weren't there. Why are you doing this to me? I felt the thing in my body continue to grow outward. tick-tock.
2: How long before everyone dies? Fuck you! Uh!
1: night 7, I woke up with the shower still running, I didn't care, the water remained hot and my teeth still chattered, Christ I wanted to die, my eyes traveled down my body and I felt like I would scream if I wasn't so exhausted, what in the living fuck, slowly I pulled my shirt up to get a better look. Something rose from underneath my skin. A blocky, square shape that occupied the entirety of my abdomen. It looked like a cartoon where a character eats something and and it contorts the shape of their body in a comical fashion. And not only was the abnormality shockingly visible, but I could feel it as well. With every beat of my heart... A tiny jolt ran through my torso. It was insistent and it was endless. Shock held me in its grasp as I gazed down at the jutting mass hidden beneath my skin. What the hell was happening to me? I need to see it. My eyes snapped up toward the corner of the bathroom. The intruder stood watching me, hidden behind a layer of steam. Its voice was eerily calm. What's wrong with me? I need to see it. I tried to sit up, failed, and then succeeded on my second attempt. I flipped the water off and felt my hair fall in strands across my eyes. I gripped the jutting corners of my extended skin. Whatever was inside felt hard. Tough. What's inside of me? What's happening? I need to chronicle it. Then I will leave. Do you know what this is? I winced as my head thundered. Another heartbeat bringing with it that strange, jolting sensation. Of course I do. What is it? How do I get it out? I gripped the edge of the bathtub as water continued to fall on me. The intruder shimmered and his head shifted slightly. It is the same as all the others. I felt myself growing furious beneath the pain. Start talking some goddamn sense! Can't you see I'm dying? Everyone will die. I need to
3: know when. I need to chronicle it. What the fuck
1: are you talking about? I slammed my hand down. Pain rocketed through me, and I buckled beneath a shuddering dizziness. Every world has one.
2: I go to find them. And then, I chronicled it.
1: I ran my hands over my alien pregnancy. This... This is what you're looking for? That is correct. Well... What is it? The intruder... Made an odd noise that sounded like a sigh. Mm. Then it spoke its voice gentle and carefully measured. It is the prophet of doom. It reveals
2: how much time this world has before it perishes. And I need to
1: see it. I need to chronicle it. Then I will leave. Stop saying that! I was unable to understand what this thing was talking about. Prophet of Doom, The world's perishing? The intruder didn't acknowledge my outburst. Sometimes the clock is at the bottom of an ocean.
2: Sometimes it is hidden in a mountain cave. Sometimes it is buried beneath great cities. But this, this is something new. Never have I seen one reveal itself inside a person before.
1: Well, lucky fucking me! I yelled, knowing I shouldn't, feeling myself buckle with sickness and fatigue. The intruder came over to my side, its bizarre, colorless form shifting and swaying down at me. I'm not supposed to interact with your world.
2: I just need to chronicle how much time is left. Then, I will leave. I swear to God, if you see that one more time... I've been very patient. I've waited. I've left you alone. Please, help me so I can leave this awful world. Go to hell! I groaned
1: as the mass inside of me expanded once more. I watched as my skin stretched, the protruding corners pulling my flesh tight against it. I felt like I would burst. The pain was almost unbearable. The intruder didn't move. Go to hell. Why?
2: No clock.
1: I'm going to die? Can't you do something to help me?
2: I'm not supposed to interact with your world, or any
1: world. I just call. Shut the fuck up! Ah! I lashed out with my fist. The intruder flew backwards like a channel of colorless water, and then realigned, its form conjoining once again. You're not going
2: to die. The clock will keep you alive until it expires. Could be days, could be millennia, but the clock is in you, and you're its clock.
1: Are you telling me that I'm stuck with this thing? I'm going to be like this Until I die
2: I believe that is exactly what I said
1: Christ This is insane This isn't happening This is some terrible fever dream And none of this is real I'm afraid it's quite real I can't live like this. The pain... Jesus, the pain is overwhelming. I moaned. I felt as if I would pop. Exploding open to reveal a belly full of knives. You will live until time expires. You have to have some idea. How much time is left? You seem like you've been doing this for a while now. Right? Tell me.
2: There is no way of knowing. Like I stated, it could be days or it could be millennia. Either way, you're stuck until the expiration. I closed my eyes. Get the fuck out of my house. <clears throat> I need to
1: see. Get the fuck out! My world rocked. I felt my body expand once again. And then, mercifully, I blacked out. Night 8. I gripped the bathroom sink. The weight of my gut pulled me towards the floor. Unbearable agony pulsed through me with every breath. My eyes watered and my throat felt raw. My knuckles were white against the sink as I tried to remain standing. My legs felt like jello and my knees trembled. Horrified, I looked down at the abomination jutting from inside of me. It looked like I had swallowed a box made of iron, the sharp corners pinching the insides of my stomach and pressing against my ribs. How was I still alive? How could any of this be happening? I heard the intruder wandering the house, impatient and frustrated. Heavy footsteps patrolled the hallway outside, and I felt a sudden urge to scream. Had I the strength, I would have. My eyes returned to the mirror over the sink. How much longer can you live like this? If only I knew. If only I had some kind of rational explanation for what was happening to me. Tick. could feel something counting down inside of me, each passing second bringing with it a quiver of sharp discomfort. I stared into my bloodshot eyes. Sweat rolled down my greasy face in thick droplets. My skin was sickly pale and heavy bags clung beneath my eyes. I fucking hated my life. I hated everything about it. I hated the pain. I hated the intruder. I hated the sickness that coursed through me. I didn't want to die. But I didn't want to keep living, either. The past couple days had been a conglomeration of madness and misery. And I just wanted it to end. You don't hate your life. What are you talking about? You're just miserably sick, and you're trying to cope with impossibilities. This will pass. But it wasn't passing. It had been over a week since my health had started to decline. Each day had brought new discomfort and agony. Leave? (laughs) Oh, yes. I had tried that, but the intruder wouldn't allow it, not until it could see the horror growing inside of me, not until it fucking chronicled it. I had tried, just this morning, to leave, to go see a doctor, but the intruder had stopped me. Well, it never touched me, no, it had just stood in front of the door, unmoving. I'd wanted to push past it, to to flee, but as I approached its form, stomach screaming, I felt something come over me. It, It was this feeling, this awful, terrible sensation that emanated from the intruder's figure. It was this suffocating negativity, this horrific desire to do harm to myself. I had stopped, almost completely overpowered by the sensation. I knew that if I walked any closer, then the feeling would overtake me and I would be powerless to it. And so I lumbered back up to the bathroom, where I stood now, contemplating the only option I seemingly had left. I opened the medicine cabinet and retrieved the straight razor I used to shave with. It looked like it had been cleaned and oiled recently. That bastard. It knew. Fuck you. I cried, tears running down my face. I stared at myself in the mirror. A pitiful, pained man. I placed the razor's edge across my stomach. I just had to see how much longer I would have to suffer. I couldn't take the mystery anymore. I would go mad if I didn't know. Just give me an end. A date in which I could hope and pray for. My hands shook, and I braced myself. I pulled the razor across my naked flesh bringing with it a sudden, oozing red line. I gasped, the pain unexpectedly different from what I imagined. I grit my teeth, body shaking with repulsion and fear, the razor blade traveling with terrifying finality. Oh! I screamed, crying hands shaking so bad, I almost dropped the razor. I could feel the folds of my stomach parting. I could feel the blood pouring down my body. I could sense a sudden presence behind me. I could see the intruder in the mirror at the bathroom door, watching me. Is this what you want? I ripped the razor blade the final distance. You want to look inside? Huh? Do you? The intruder did not answer. It simply watched me through the reflection. I cast the razor aside and felt something empty from my gut and spill onto the floor. It was a viscous, grey slime that splashed and coiled onto the tile like wet clay. I vomited and slumped against the sink, my legs threatening to give way. I couldn't go down. Not yet. Not until I had seen. I had to see. Just one look! God damn it. Just one look! Crying. Screaming. Moaning. I pushed myself up to look into the mirror one last time. I dug my hands into my parted flesh. Bellowing. I pulled my severed stomach apart. Blinking. From inside my belly. a clock, its green numbers glowing vibrantly through the blood, how much time, sucking in a labored breath, I focused on the numbers, my eyes widened, and everything went silent, the intruder at my back vanished, its presence evaporating. I continued to stare at the numbers, and then I began to laugh. <laughs>
0: We all know that one person who tells wild stories – no, I don't mean me – I mean the kind of person who happens to have seen everything, experienced everything, done everything, and lived an extraordinary, remarkable life. But in this tale, shared with us by author Jared Roberts, we find out that very occasionally those tall tale tellers are telling the truth. Performing this tale are Graham Rowett, Mick Wingert, Erica Sanderson, and Aaron Lillis. So it might seem like your neighbor's life was made up of scenes from a beloved children's movie, but listen closely, because some details might have changed in the retelling, and you might find yourself saying, you're killing me, Smalls.
4: Don Smalls came over and introduced himself to us before we even stepped out of the U-Haul. Told us to call him Scotty, and he hoped I'd come join him for a beer the next night. I like nice people. I like beer. And I didn't know anyone in North Dakota yet, so I figured, why not? We got along great, actually. We decided to make it a regular thing. Once a week, I'd have a beer with him, and we'd stay up talking about everything. All the stuff I couldn't talk to anybody else about the deep stuff. Don was nearly 70, twice my age, lived alone as a widower, kept an English mastiff that was three paws in the grave, and loved baseball. I was always a hockey guy, but I still admired the precision of baseball. Hanging around with Don, I got into it. No specific team. All baseball is good baseball for Don Scotty Smalls. After hanging around with Don for a few months, I started to find it strange how he didn't have any friends. Everybody seemed to know him. They even seemed to like him. And I was his only friend. Correction, I didn't find it strange. My wife found it strange. Then she pointed it out to me. I was comfortable enough with him. I figured I'll just ask him. Heck, I almost looked at him like a dad by that point,
5: or at least an uncle. Well, I had friends once best damn group of friends you could ask for. Things happened, and we went our separate ways. Well, after that, I had my wife, but I never found friends like that again. I saw his
4: eyes glaze over, and his face seemed at once younger and older.
5: I don't know how it's possible. That was over 50 years ago. It's all changed, all lost. Except the memories, of course. Don't you wish you could just Capture some times in a snow globe and have them forever. I'd hit that age where you start reflecting wistfully and nostalgically
4: on your past. How much time has gone between thens and nows. How much it all changes and is gone. I couldn't talk to my wife about those things. I talked to myself. Bottled it up. So I knew exactly what Don meant. His eyes lit up again, like he could sense what I was thinking. Memories need to be shared... When you hoard memories, they become heavy and sour. Shared, they have you walking on air, because they're alive somehow. You just have to find someone to share them with. Someone who listens, understands, or can remember along. I could do the first two of those. He got so excited. He was like a kid. His eyes were sprightly, his mouth trapped in a youthful grin. He brought in more beer and a pack of his precious moose meat jerky. Unlike
5: memories, Moose Jerky does not need to be shared. Okay, let me tell you about this one time. Now, we used to spend most days playing ball in this little patch of poverty with a diamond scratched into the Johnson grass. Pretty much all day, that's all we did. This one day, it had to be 150 outside, it was so hot. Couldn't get a pitch because of all of the sweat. Only Benny wanted to play. He always wanted to play. (sighs) But he was overruled. We decided we're going to the pool, and my pal, the little squirt we called
4: Squints... At this point in his story, my inner voice is saying, no, there's no way he's going to say what I think he's going to say. Yet, was there any doubt?
5: Well, Squints pretends he's drowning at the pool. He has the hots for the lifeguard, Wendy What's face? She does her job and saves the little guy. Well, he's not breathing, see. So it's time for some mouth-to-mouth resuscitation. He rams his tongue down her throat. (laughs) She was furious. We got banned for life. If you asked him, it was worth it. I couldn't believe it. I wondered if this friend
4: I'd grown so close to was a pathological liar. Did he think I wouldn't know? Everyone saw the Sandlot when I was a kid, over and over. He just described a scene from the movie. Then I worried he might have dementia, and saying something would upset him. So I played along, laughed at his story, acted like I'd never heard such a thing. Then he starts in on another story. Again, his eyes are twinkling with excitement. It's genuine. He's not lying, not intentionally. He believes what he's saying.
5: I was sure of that. Oh, you have to hear this one. We just whooped these fancy pants kids who showed up talking trash. You celebrate that kind of thing, you know. Our pal Bertram got a whole bag of chewing tobacco so we could be like real ball players. Now, we didn't know what we were doing. You'd think we'd stood there and chewed it on the field? No, sir. We decided
4: to do it at, at- the carnival. And then you all got sick on the rides, ruined your clothes and some girls' dresses while you were at it. It's some story. I couldn't help it. Don looked at me like I was the devil himself. I half expected him to run for a shotgun. His hands started shaking, so he had to put his beer down.
5: How could you have known that? I never told you that story. Did I tell you that story? Am I getting the Alzheimer's? Are you one of them? I felt bad seeing him react like that.
4: I still didn't know what ground I was on, but I took a chance with the truth. I've seen the movie, Scotty. The Sandlot. About Scotty Smalls and the great friends he made playing baseball, eating s'mores. I can't believe I didn't make the connections before now.
5: S'mores.
4: He spoke with a mixture of nostalgia and what struck me as horror. His dog stirred in its bed. The dog's name was S'mores. How did I miss it for so long? S'mores. Scotty Smalls. Baseball. I remember when I first learned about s'mores. Everyone loves that scene, when Ham teaches Smalls what s'mores are, and at first Smalls has no idea what the heck he's talking about. That's my life. That wasn't anyone else's to share. His face was suddenly red with upset. It occurred to me that I'd never seen Don angry before. Ever.
5: And why? Why love that scene? It wasn't a happy night. After serving up the first s'mores, Ham said he'd seen me. I'd laughed. Of course he'd seen me, I'm not a ghost. He shook his head. Not like him to use his words, you know. He said he'd seen me in his room the night before. Why were you in my room, Smalls? He asked. His hand is shaking too much to roast his marshmallow, and his eyes glistened in the candlelight. It's funny how you remember those little things.
4: What is this? The sudden variation from the script hit me like a punch.
5: He says he saw me watching him and moving. Moving around, that was his phrase. Why were you moving around like that, he asked in a shriek I'd never heard before. I swore till my teeth hurt that I was not in his room. Well, the more I swore, the more he fixated. Just moving around, he says, like he can see it, and it's scaring him right there. He's so white as freckles, look like blood. Moving around, like, like... The others just listened on, not talking. I think they were scared, too. Then Ham just let it go. Stayed quiet the rest of the night. But so did the rest of us that night. I was surprised to find myself shaking, too.
4: Don had gotten so into the telling, like he was describing something he was seeing. I guess then my old friend really did have dementia. With any luck, he'd forget this whole line of conversation and go back to reality, because it was freaking me out. But no, he said he could prove he was who he claimed to be. I protested, told him that wasn't necessary, but he called my bullshit. He went to another room, the one he keeps closed, just past his bathroom. He rustled around in there for a few minutes while I helped myself to another beer. He came back with a ball signed by all the 1927 Yankees, pictures of him and the gang, and they did resemble the kids in the movie, and a pair of antique PF flyers.
5: Look here, that's Wendy What's-Her-Face. Squints wanted this picture because you can see down her top. But it was my dad's camera Here we are ready to play ball Here's Benny Benny again (laughs) I was in love with Benny, you know
4: I nodded Like it all made sense I was stunned by the resemblance Picture after picture It was uncannily like the movie Yet no doubt the pictures were authentic I was starting to believe him My friend was the real Scotty Smalls, relocated from California to North Dakota. Someone had taken the liberty of turning his life into a
5: movie without telling him. It was possible, right? Here's no man's land where the beast lived. Still, after all this time, I wake up screaming when I dream of that place. I stopped him there, screaming. I told him how
4: much I loved that part of the movie. When Benny goes over the fence for the ball, and there's a big chase, and it turns out, spoiler alert, the beast is a sweetheart named Hercules and becomes their official mascot. Oh, that's not what happened. That's ass-over-tea-kettle wrong! I waited. I needed to know. How wrong? He had a pained look. He didn't want to talk about it. I looked at the picture of No Man's Land. Something about it gave me the chills. It wasn't dissimilar to the yard in the movie. There was just something else.
5: You get close to that place and you'd start to get sick, especially if you touch the fence. You'd feel yourself getting dizzy, then you'd vomit, and you're out the rest of the day. Our hair would fall out for a few days if we got too close. Any ball popped that way was lost for good. Our watches wouldn't work neither twins had complained it hurt their feelings. things had a way of going there like it pulled them in something else about that house that house had change nobody noticed but us some days it was a squat green house with a rusty back porch and a loose door and that door'd squeal in the wind like a dying pig others it'd be a two-story red house had a strange weather vane on top, and we could see birds dying in the gutters. But sometimes we'd look at it, and it was all... blurry. Out of focus, as they'd say. Imagine that. The wind was picking
4: up outside. It was night. The sounds of the house seemed menacing with this story fresh in my mind. I was feeling a general sense of anxiety as Don's childhood encroached on mine. I couldn't even finish my jerky. didn't matter that I didn't, couldn't believe him literally. It was eerie, and he believed it. He went on, like he had to get it all out now while he could.
5: First time I heard about the beast was in the old treehouse. We were having a sleepover, the whole lot of us packed up in there. And Ham had a nice setup. We looked out one of the windows and saw the land it overlooked. That yard. It didn't seem to belong in the neighborhood at all. The soil was all wrong. Everything about it was. The rocks and debris strewn around the yard in a pattern. It was like that Stonehenge, or or one of those. Like it had a purpose. That's what I'd seen in the picture. A pattern
4: in the yard's debris. A meaningless and yet disturbing pattern.
5: Ham yelled at me, Don't look at it! It gets in your head! Well, I was an inquisitive little fucker, so I started asking what the deal is. Shut up, Smalls, he says, and hands me another marshmallow. Squints, though. I think he was waiting for a moment like that. He had us all shut up so he could tell his story. I stretched out with my head in Benny's lap and listened. Now, Squince's dad was the neighborhood drunk. Everyone knew it. We felt bad for Squince. He tells us that night. You know why dad drinks so much? Because of that place, he says. He says his dad worked for the city. Got called out to the house on complaints about the dog. Quit his job soon after. Never talked about it until he got real drunk. Then he'd say, there wasn't no dog. Other times he'd rant that there was a magnet inside more powerful than anything, and the people in there were aliens. Well, that's when we'd had enough and threw our marshmallows at Squitz. (laughs) But it stuck with me. There wasn't no dog. About this time, a fellow in a suit came by the lot while we were playing. He called for Benny by name. We all come running. He says to Benjamin that he's a talent scout and Benny's been spotted. Once you've been spotted, well, boy, stick a fork in you. You're done. The man said it like he'd said it a hundred thousand times. The man took Benny aside and they had a long chat. Benny came back to tell us he had to go. Tryouts, testing, training to prepare for his career. Career! We were still eating s'mores in a treehouse. I begged Belly not to go. I told him something wasn't right, but he said he had to. They got into a white Toyota and drove off. When Benny came back, he was different. I mean, he looked the same, sounded the same, but he smelled like, like mold. He never smelled like that before. Now, always. And he felt different. Oh, he could swing better. I don't think he ever missed after that. But when he wasn't playing ball, he milled around, stared directly at the sun, like he was waiting for something. We told him he'd go blind that way. Didn't seem to affect him any. I said to the others, there's something wrong with Benny. They did something to him. They changed him. They told me I was jealous and he was the same old Benny and to knock it off. They wouldn't listen. We had our last night in the treehouse as a group right around there. Everything was falling apart already. Benny stared into the candlelight the whole night, seemed agitated. We barely talked and ate marshmallows more out of tradition than wanting. I woke up when I heard someone slipping down from the treehouse. My first thought was Benny. I grabbed Ham's flashlight and looked out. I heard squints behind me ask, Who is it? Then we heard Ham down below shouting, Smalls, what are you doing? I saw his shape running through the sand lot. I tried to follow him with the flashlight, but it wasn't strong enough. Where's he going? Kenny asked. We were all waking up now. Smalls, he shouted, Get back! He's chasing someone, Squint says. I tried calling out to him. We all did. He ran right up to the fence and slipped through. Must have found a loose panel. It wasn't a cold night, but we were all shivering and huddling together. It didn't help. We heard Ham shriek. You're killing me, Smalls! We waited and waited for something else until the sun started to rise. We went to Ham's mother and told her everything. She shook her head and informed us Ham came in at night running a fever. He's very sick and won't be coming out, she says. We walked away thinking we were all dreaming. We went to playing baseball as normal. Benny swinging better, we were losing a lot more balls to no man's land. To the point where one day we had no more balls. Except I knew one ball I could get my grubby paws on. The one in my dad's trophy case, signed by Babe Ruth. I didn't care, though. We were baseball crazy, and I needed Benny to like me. Naturally, Benny hits the ball right into the beast's territory, first shot. When I tell the others just what ball we hit over there and how I have to get it back, they kindly informed me of just how many ways till Sunday I was screwed. That's when they told me there had been others before me. Joined the group, went over that fence for a ball, never came back. Come on, I say, they're just trying to scare me, right? You're not the first Smalls, Bertram said. The others nodded. Kenny said they got a new Smalls every few months. They joked that the yard must be full of Smalls and Balls. I argued with them. They had to mean a new kid. No, they insisted the kid was always named Smalls. They looked embarrassed, said they thought we were all related. I felt a strange sensation of being in someone else's dream. This terrible emptiness. I asked them, "Well, did the others look like me? They shrugged like they didn't know. These smart asses have an answer for everything and they can't answer that. But I knew I was a unique person. I had and still have my memories, hopes and dreams. I tell them so. They shrugged again. We were standing close enough to the fence at this point. We were all feeling a little ill. That must be it, I tell myself. Get me another beer, would you? I'm getting dry.
4: I was glad for
5: the interruption.
4: It's difficult to explain how I felt. It wasn't just that what Don was saying was insane. It's that it was ruining my childhood memories. I loved that movie. I'd always wanted that to be me. Except with less baseball. It didn't feel like Don was lying. It felt like the movie lied. I got myself a beer, too. I'd never be able to say, You're killing me, Smalls, without a shudder again.
5: Anyway, they said I was their favorite Smalls yet. I said if they wanted to keep me, we'd better get that ball. As usual, they deferred to Benny. He was staring at the sun again. Ham elbowed him, but he just kept staring into the sun. He muttered something. I got up close, never told the others what he was saying, but I heard him. He was saying, it's too dark, over and over. I held his hand. He answered by belting out, get the ball! Oh, I let go and backed away. And he went back to the sun. I suggested we go around the front and knock. That was quickly ruled out as an option. We had to retrieve the ball unseen, or else they assured me there'd be consequences. Well, what kind of consequences? Well, they didn't know for sure. The bad kind. Our first thought was a stick. We'd use a mirror on one stick, which squints would hold, and another stick with a catcher's mitt. That was in the movie. No. Oh. Well, you know that it didn't work then. Yeah, Squince was holding the stick and got lesions all over his hands because he couldn't pull the ball back. We decided to lower me down from the treehouse. I didn't want to do it. But it was my responsibility, see? I started getting sick on the way down. It wasn't the harness pressing against my belly or the swinging motion. It was that place. I vomited into the yard made the guys lose their grip, and I dropped the rest of the way. Once on my feet, it didn't feel so bad. Like I was past the hard part. I stood there for a while, like an astronaut landing on the moon. Was there gravity here? Then the chain moved. I felt warmth trickle down one leg, but I couldn't move. I could hear yelling, like it was coming from miles away. Grab the ball and get out! Then I was yanked out. My heart was still beating out of my chest. That's when Benny suddenly asked what we were doing, like he hadn't been there all day. We told him getting the damn ball you knocked over there. He nods and shimmies up over the fence like it was nothing nothing we watch from the treehouse he grabs the chain and pulls on it oh we figure he's done but an empty leash comes back is it loose but what made the chain move earlier instead of grabbing the ball he walks up to the old aluminum and plywood shed and just disappears into it I whisper shouted for him to come back no answer My mind flashed through all the horrible possibilities. The shed was full of rattlesnakes and spiders. The dog was hiding inside and tore out his throat. He fell headfirst into a bear trap. When we saw he wasn't coming back, we lost it. We charged the fence all at once. It collapsed with a god-awful racket. We stood still while silence resumed, waiting for the mysterious Mr. Myrtle to finish us off. But he never came. Together we approached the old shed, and we all felt it. An illness down to our molecules, a hum that resonated in our heads. It was an evil, sickly sound. Ham shone the pocket light he was so proud of into the shed. No tools or gardening equipment, no baseballs, no bodies, definitely no dog. Also, no Benny. The shed was basically empty. How is this possible, one of us asked. Then Squints noticed something. There was part of the shed where it stayed dark, even with the light pointed at it. Kenny thought it was a hole at first. A hole that sucks in all the balls. And now Benny. It wasn't a hole, though. It was just a triangular patch of dark. And then... Then, just like that, as we watched, it was gone. And a wisp of smoke flashed past our faces with a groan. We all felt it. We talked about it later. At the time, we said nothing. Sorrow just overwhelmed us. We walked away from the shed, feeling we would never see Benny again. I told them, I'm knocking. They were too miserable to argue. They let me go. My legs wobbly, I approached and knocked on the front door. The gang had followed at a distance. Their faces looked green from the reflection of the sighting. The door opened, and there stood a youngish man with a suit. I could see others behind him, also dressed like they're at the office. The inside didn't look like a house at all. It was blinding white, with no real furniture, like a pharmacy. Painted on one wall in black was MRT-L3. We're not buying... The man said slowly, carefully, like he thought I didn't know English. I just blurted out everything, the ball, Benny, the dog. He listened soberly, then glanced back at his associates. He went back into the house and came out with this ball, signed by the 1927 Yankees. He handed it to me and said, This is a replacement ball of equal to or greater value. Then slammed the door in my face. I pounded the door over and over again. I could hear someone coming to the door, but before they could open, I felt myself being pulled away from behind. And as we got further away, I could see the house was red and the weather vane was spinning. On the next day, that place was deserted. Backyard plowed over. A crane was loading some large device from the rubble into a truck. We tried to tell the adults in our lives what we thought we knew. They thought we'd found some reefer. So we all did what we could do. We tried to move on. Forget it. do the things we used to do. It just wasn't the same. Never would be the same. We stopped spending time together. Stopped baseball. Stopped thinking about
4: it. I'd had enough beers by then. My mind was hazy. There are a lot of questions I could have and should have asked. I did at least get out the biggest
5: one. What about Benny? Run away. That's what they said. Those talent scouts never came looking for him. He was gone before he was ever gone anyway. That wasn't Benny at the end. Never saw him again. Or Ham. We heard he passed away about a month after. It was a closed casket.
4: Don said his stepdad took him and his mother to Washington soon after. He was glad to
5: leave and never looked back. But friendship isn't something you forget. There are few perfect moments when you have a good group of friends before everything starts to change. And those moments feed you for the rest of your life.
4: I left Don's house that night, feeling the world was smaller and stranger than I ever knew. I wanted to tell someone, but who would believe me? I barely believed it. When I got settled in with some tea, I re-watched The Sandlot. Looking for clues, I guess. I don't know. If even half of what Don said was true, what would be the point of making a nostalgic, sanitized movie based on his life story without his consent? And if none of what he said was true... Why make such a story up? He's never lied about anything else. The next week, when I went to chill with Don as usual, his packed suitcase was at the door. He handed me his house keys without a word. I had to ask him what was going on. He said he couldn't stop thinking about it. Since
5: that night, it was all he could think of. I have to go back. See it again. There's something I'm missing. Something that was right in front of me.
4: He already had a plane ticket. All he needed was for me to look after S'mores and the house. I assured him I'd be glad to, but I didn't think going back was a good idea. I'll be fine. He gave me a reassuring but fake grin. That was on Monday. S'mores, as you recall, was pretty close to giving up the ghost. He rarely got up except to eat and excrete. Thursday, at 9.34 p.m., he became extremely agitated. He paced from room to room, panting, looking. At first, I thought he heard something, or maybe just missed Dawn, but I felt it too. Something was wrong. Dawn should have been back, or at least called. So that weekend, after arguing with my wife, I left s'mores with her and began the long drive to find Dawn. I had to dig through his papers for the address. I was nervous, and my hopes were low. I didn't know what I was looking for, really. I was so tired when I got there, I had to pull over and sleep. I woke up to see I was parked outside a new complex, the Myrtle Creek Apartments. Behind it, an overgrown, empty lot. I felt it. This was the place. I got out of the car to look around. I had no other leads. I walked to the back of the apartments. The chain-link fence was torn in spots. I stepped through into the Johnson grass. I could just make out the diamond worn into it. I was there. I was in THE sandlot. I could see a wheelless Toyota rusting at the perimeter. A group of children came hopping into the field, almost single file until they got to the diamond. Then they saw me and came to an abrupt halt. There they stood, and they watched me. I called out to them and waved. They didn't say or do anything. They kept staring. They hated me. It was an undisguised resentment. I'd invaded their lot. It made me nervous. Sounds stupid to be scared of children, but they weren't behaving right. All yours. I went back the way I came. Once I was out of their space, I heard one of them shout,
6: You're up, Smalls.
4: I looked back to see a freckly blonde boy run up to the batter's plate. Smalls. They got ready to play around in the grass and rust. I'd seen enough. I felt like I was being watched. I thought it was the children, but I still felt it. That's when I saw the man on the balcony. I called to him and asked if he'd seen Don. Gave him a rough description. He didn't even let me finish. He's gone back. I could see he was blind. So much for being watched. I couldn't believe it, if I'd driven all that way for nothing. When did he leave? Leave? I heard a chain moving, the sound of the chain dragging across the linoleum swiftly. I noticed the blind man was wearing some ancient PF flyers, just like Don's. When I looked back at his face, I caught a strange smirk. I'm here. Don... He walked onto the balcony behind the blind man. He looked okay, but none of this felt okay.
5: Go back to North Dakota and forget everything I told you. It's fine. Look, this is Benny, and he's fine. What's going on? I have to stay here. It's where I belong. What about s'mores, your home? You have to put those things in perspective. I heard the kids laughing in the
4: sandlot. Just normal kids, I had to tell myself. But when I looked, they were standing in a line, (laughs) laughing like they were at an audition for the role of laughing child number two. You'd better go. Benny was already closing the door anyway. I couldn't think of anything to say as the glass door slid shut and the curtains were pulled. I walked sluggishly back to my car As I prepared to drive away, a nosy neighbor came out of her house, sashaying toward me in unflattering shorts and
6: crocs. You don't want a room there. I tell everyone who comes here. That place, you ever seen Poltergeist? They dug up all those bodies there to build it. All kids' bodies. They're not required to disclose, so I disclose.
4: Balls and Smalls. I went back home I couldn't force Don to come with me He seemed happy, I guess I think he was happier drinking beer with me and s'mores But maybe I was just being selfish I sent a postcard when s'mores at last pined for the fjords It was returned I never went back Never saw Don again Real smalls or not I miss the guy But I try to focus on the future now Never know what you'll find in the past.
0: People call into radio stations to say the strangest things. Maybe they've seen Bigfoot, or maybe aliens are about to abduct them. Maybe they want to reveal undeniable proof that our world government is run by lizard people. But in this tale, shared with us by author Erica Rupert, one lady wants to tell the host that her husband has begun to glow. Performing this tale is Sarah Thomas. So maybe it's a crank call. Maybe she's hallucinating. Or maybe it's a distant early warning.
7: Can you hear me? Chuck? Hello? Oh, okay. There you are. Wait, there's a weird echo... Yes, my radio's off. Thank you for taking my call. I used to listen to you all the time when I lived over in Binghamton. My name is Carolee, and I'm calling from Harrisburg. Harrisburg. Can you hear me? Okay. Hold on a minute. I'm sorry, it sounds like someone's in here with me. I'm in the garage in my car. It smells like oil and dirt and dead grass in here, but it's safer to talk here than in the house. No windows. Wait, do you hear that? No, it's like a ping, like metal. David, is that you? Okay, I think it's okay. Can I start now, Chuck? Okay. So two nights ago, I woke up in the middle of the night and my husband, David, was standing at the window inside the curtains so it looked like a ghost there. With the moonlight all bright on him and shadowy from the curtains. And I said, Honey, what is it? And he turned around really slowly, like in one of the old black and white horror movies, with his hands up. And through the curtain material, I could see his eyes glowing, silver white, like when you burn magnesium. Did you ever burn magnesium back in chemistry class in high school? It's so bright you aren't supposed to look at it because it can cause eye damage. That's what they always told us. And his eyes were like that. And then he opened his mouth and the light came spilling out there too, like a bib running down his chest. I don't remember, but I think I screamed because he started to come toward me and the curtains were slipping off him and I didn't want to see anymore. Then I blacked out. The next morning, uh, yesterday morning, I woke up and David was there next to me in bed sleeping in a pile of blankets like he always does. What's that noise? Do you hear it? It's like a metallic echo, like feedback. Hold on. Okay, I'm creeping myself out. I'm glad you're listening, Chuck, so it's not like I'm alone. What? Oh, yeah, keep going. So I woke up and I reached over and shook David awake to be with me because I thought it'd been a really bad dream and I wanted to tell him about it. But when he rolled over, even though he was still breathing, I could tell he was dead. Even though he sat up and listened to me and said things to calm me down, I I knew he was dead. And I kept talking to him because I didn't know what to do. So after a while, we got up, we went to work like everything was normal. But I couldn't stop thinking about the silver-white light coming out of him and how he was dead, even though he was up and moving around and acting like he always did. So I told Carl, uh, he's my boss. Did you hear that, Chuck? The feedback echo again. No? Okay. I'm imagining it now. I hope. Anyway, I told Carl I had a blinding headache and had to go home and he let me go without too much guilt. So I drove back, and there's David's car in the driveway, and him standing on the front step. And the way the shadows fell on him from the overhang, I could see he was giving off a little glow, like a special effect on a picture. I couldn't hide from him, and I had nowhere to go, so I got out of the car and sort of went around him and went inside. He didn't say anything to me, so I went into the kitchen for some water and When he finally came in after me, I told him I had a sick headache and had to come home. And he said, No, you're lying. And I said, No, my head hurts and I'm going to go lie down. But I was scared because, well, he's glowing. And also because his voice sounded a little metallic, like a bad connection or a cartoon robot. So I went to the bedroom and pulled the shades and laid down on top of the blankets And after a few minutes, David came in and laid down next to me. I lay really still, not pretending to be asleep or anything, just trying to stay out of his way, if you know what I mean. So we both just lay there, not talking, just breathing side by side. After a while, I must have fallen asleep because the next thing I remember is seeing the sky all dark blue around the edges of the shades and David being gone. There was a big, smeared stain on the blankets next to me, like neon paint had spilled or someone had crushed a huge lightning bug, and it glowed like a softer version of that bright white light that had been coming out of David. It was like he was a sponge full of the light, and it leaked out of him when he lay down. I called out for David, but he didn't answer me, and I thought maybe he'd gone out. I hope so. So I got up and stripped the bed and went into the bathroom to wash up, and that's when I saw that what was in him was in me, too. I saw it glowing inside my mouth, behind my teeth. That was pretty bad. I screamed some more and tried to scrub it out with my toothbrush, but there was nothing there to scrub, just the light filling up my mouth. Then I could see it starting to creep up in my eyes. It didn't hurt like I thought it would, and I didn't feel like screaming anymore. It felt like when your hand falls asleep. A buzzy feeling. But not bad, if, if you know what I mean. Just weird. So I went out into the kitchen then, and there was David, sitting straight up at the table, shining like a lantern. I said, "'What's happening?' but he just stared straight ahead, out the window to where you could see the moon in the sky. But then I realized the moon didn't look right. It was flat and shaped like an eye and too bright, with a hard bluish edge to the light. David was staring at it like it was going to tell him something, like he was listening for some signal he knew would come. So I sat down next to him and Waited for whatever we were waiting for. I didn't fall asleep this time. After a long time, the sun came up. And when it hit him, David sort of crumpled up, like ash falling in on itself. And the light that was in him went everywhere in one huge strobe flash, and I had to cover my eyes, and I think I breathed some in. The ash, and the light, I guess... Anyway, it burned. That really scared me because it felt really cold, too. And I tried to rinse my face and rinse my mouth out, but I could taste it flat and metallic, like a battery smells. And my skin was so cold where David's ash got on me burning cold. And that's when I decided to pull my car into the garage and wait and see what would happen. I'd go to the hospital, but what could they do? What could they have done for David? They don't treat people who blow up in a cloud of light and ashes. They just lock me up, and if they lock me up, I don't know how far this will go. We'll spread. It's an infection somehow, I think. It feels like it is. I can't say for certain. But the thing that isn't the moon, I'm sure it's the reason for this. David was fine until he caught its eye. But the moon can't see me in here. Not well, anyway. So I might have a chance to wait it out. There aren't any windows. I could hear the buzzing trying to get through. The echo. Like a fly in my ear. That's why I turned the radio on, to drown it out. And there you were. Thanks for listening, Chuck. What time is it? Already? Time flies. Can you hear that now? No. Okay. I'll call back tomorrow if I can, Chuck. Once I see what happens when the sun comes up,
0: We've heard before the dangers of trying to pursue local legends, but that lesson apparently hasn't reached the ears of this woman who grew up hearing about certain disappearances. In this tale, shared with us by author Mandy McHugh, we once again realize it's a bad idea to go pursuing urban myths. Performing this tale are Jessica McAvoy and Addison Peacock. So if you go down to the woods today, then make sure you don't take lollipops from strangers, lest you end up as one of the Candy Girls.
6: Leaves crackle under my weight as I walk the path to the Candy Girls. I saw them first in a dream, a fever pitch reality that left me clawing to the surface for escape. Their eyes are glass, their eyes are glass, I hissed in harsh breaths, throwing the comforter from my lap and wiping sweat from my brow. The image faded, as dreams do. Their milky skin and translucent eyes dissipated into the recesses of my mind and I went on with the normal course of my day, no worse for wear. Later that night, however, as I tucked my legs beneath me in the cozy confines of a sofa, content with a fresh bowl of popcorn and a steady stream of Netflix originals, I saw one. From the corner of my eye, she appeared in the shadows, hair as white as cotton and sharp as daggers. It tinkled faintly as she rocked, the sweetness of chimes dancing in a breeze. Her body was the color of honey, hardened through the process, but sheer. A crystalline shell I was terrified would shatter if I looked directly at her. But you have to, you have to look. No, I won't. You will, you know you will. She was right. I could feel my resolve fracturing And when I looked, turning my head slowly, her rocking stopped. I stared into her eyes, through them, to the wall. They were made of glass, beautifully fragile and empty.
7: You must come.
6: We need your help. Who? Who needs my help? I knew the answer, though. No one. The last person I thought needed me had left weeks ago the note was simple enough. Two words and an empty house proving my deepest fears to be true. I'm sorry. You're needed here. You're wanted here. Come to us. Her jaw cracked open then, grating down to her chest and revealing two identical lines of razor teeth. Where can I find you? My focus locked on the glass teeth. They pulsed in their sockets, threatening to explode. I couldn't look away, mesmerized by their throb and complete lack of movement from the rest of her. You already know. I don't. My objection was cut short by her shriek, fierce and pained, void of reason. I wanted to cover my ears, but my hands stayed frozen on my lap. Tears ran gullets down my cheeks, and I was certain I felt my own eyes stiffening. They were made of wet sand, and she was lightning, striking my core in a juxtaposition of unity and destruction that was anything but natural. Then she was gone, leaving nothing of her presence except two sooty smudges in the spot where she stood, spidering like neurons or bare branches, reaching ever towards the heavens, I knew where she wanted me to go. We all heard the stories growing up. Learning the local legends is a rite of passage in every small town. We dared each other to go into the woods, past the dilapidated row of houses that crumbled and moaned, past the downed trunks and thorny overgrowth, past the cluster of leaning gravestones, their surfaces unmarked and forgotten by time, into the clearing that shouldn't have been had no right to exist. The one where the candy girls lived. Everyone had a friend who knew a girl who took the journey and was never seen again. I fought the urge, pushed against the idea with every ounce of fortitude I could muster, tried to talk sense into the maddening rush ordering me to go. I hallucinated, I told myself. I must have dozed off. There is no woman made of honey and
7: glass. Then how do you explain the marks?
6: Scuffs is all. Or a rust stain from an old planter.
7: That magically appeared in the same place where the woman from your nightmares spoke to you?
6: She wasn't real. Are you sure? Sliding off the couch, I crept to the corner and ran my fingers along the smudges. They were cold and wet and sticky to the touch. And they smelled, like lilacs and caramel, roses and butterscotch, lilies and vanilla. Each inhale produced another combination more intoxicating than the one that came before it. The last of my doubts melted with clover and cinnamon. Come to us. I grabbed my keys and drove to the base of the escarpment ambivalent to the fact that it might be the last time I see my home. The path isn't much, a narrow line in the dirt that occasionally disappears into the bushes. There are other trails here, more populated and clear of debris. In autumn, the entire area is swarmed by leaf peepers from Vermont and amateur photographers documenting the changes in colors, rusts and ambers and golds, Tonight, however, I am alone. What am I doing here? I'm not outdoorsy under the best of circumstances. Traipsing through the wilderness in the middle of the night? That's not me. I hear her again, the candy girl. Her voice is round and melodious. Help us. You're needed. You're wanted. It beckons me through a jagged row of pines, and I follow, dazed and determined. But then, I'm falling. The steep incline catches me by surprise, and I collapse into a violent tumble. Rocks and prickers and broken branches tear at my clothes and dig at my sides. Any place that's exposed to the elements is shredded and smashed. I don't cry. Afraid that if I open my mouth, she'll find me. Yet I'm equally afraid that if I remain silent, I'll fall forever.
7: You're almost here. You're so close. Welcome home.
6: My descent jerks to a halt at the edge of a field. A circle of willows guards the perimeter, limbs bent low shielding their secret from the world above with lazy sways and hushes. Hello? I graze rough scrapes on my chin, but I don't think anything's broken. A miracle, I think, taking in the drop with its vertical slope and treacherous terrain. You made it. My head swivels in the opposite direction, towards the willows, and I see him, The man standing at the tree line is neither tall nor short, handsome nor crude. His eyes are soft but dangerous, and I realize I'm trembling. Who are you?
0: I'm the artist.
6: (sighs) He releases a puff of air, white and ethereal, that smells of lavender and cloves. Desire fills me. And I want nothing more than to go to him. Run my fingers through his hair. Touch his face. Breathe him in. Why am I here? The artist smiles and holds out his hand.
0: Come with me.
6: My feet shuffle forward, seemingly of their own accord. And I ignore my gut as it twists and moans, telling me to run. As I take his waiting hand... The artist sighs, and shoves a red lollipop the size of a marble into my mouth. This way. I want to spit it out, but it sticks to the insides of my cheeks. I can't speak, and a swell of panic surges forward. I'm choking, gagging on the sweetness, and still he pulls me along.
0: It will pass, but what comes next is oftentimes worse.
6: In the center of the clearing, the candy girl observes us. You made it. Her lips don't move. I'm grateful, as I'm afraid another glimpse at her pointed fangs will cripple my sanity. The lollipop is almost gone. Globs of honey-flavored sugar cling to the stick. Her eyes scan my face.
0: Your test is about to begin.
6: Run! My gut shouts, Please! It's too late. It's already begun. She's right. Fluid sloshes around in my stomach. The cramping comes next, sudden and debilitating. I keel over, on my knees now, and the first wave of vomit escapes. I am at its mercy, lurching forth and helpless. The pain is exquisite a phrase I've never understood until this moment. Bittersweet and all-encompassing, every nerve in my body responds to the sickness. The candy girl doesn't offer help or reprieve. She raises her arms to the sky and rocks gently, left to right, left to right. The artist watches in euphoric anticipation As the red-hot liquid continues to ooze out, the retching subsides after a few more heaves.
3: Wonderful!
6: What's happening? What did you give me? He laughs and shoves another lollipop into my mouth before I can turn away. I see then that there are others. More candy girls swaying in the background. The one I think of as mine has joined them. Their bodies are honey-colored, too, but varying shades. Some lighter, some darker, but all tinged in the golden hue and crystal eyes.
0: Don't fight.
6: Yanking the stick proves to be futile. The sugary slop adheres to the soft skin of my cheeks as I pull at it, tearing flaps of flesh in my haste. Muffled screams mix with my tears. Cramps rack my body again, and the candy girls march forward. Each one extends a red bucket.
0: What value do you possess beyond this space? Nobody wants you. Nobody sees your true worth. You are unappreciated and ignored, criticized and shamed. Your size dictates how others see you, how you see yourself. My girls were once like you, consumed by their insecurities and flaws.
6: I shake my head as something inside wrenches free. I imagine my intestines unraveling, stretching out and unwrinkling, as I lose control of my stomach and vomit it into the buckets. With every heave, part of me drains away. There are solid bits in the swill now. And I'm sure that whatever is in the lollipops is ripping me
0: apart. But now my girls are priceless. Worth more than the most expensive gems in the world. They've given themselves to the process completely, and you will do the same.
6: My head buzzes. A drum roll of confusion. And the candy girls are chanting. Indiscernible words that ebb and flow like the changing tides.
0: Or you will die.
6: The artist points to the left, and I'm acutely aware of the stench emanating from the woods. It should be impossible. Only minutes ago I was sitting in the brush, but as the third lollipop is stuck into my mouth, I understand that time means nothing in the clearing. The blackened trees have been replaced by a swamp. I crawl towards it anyway, grabbing fistfuls of stiff grass for purchase. Gravity seems to be working against me, and by the time I reach the putrid murk, I'm exhausted, out of breath and pale from exertion. The pit is full of decomposing bodies in various stages of decay. Those with faces are twisted in rage and disbelief they're covered in gore. Congealing lumps and fatty pearls of peeling tissue cling to their bloated corpses, desperately trying to float above the unimaginable darkness of the corporeal quagmire.
0: Those are the ones who suffered for nothing, who rooted to their old ways and refused to see the beauty of transformation. Those are the bodies of women who failed.
6: Their chants surround me, more snaps and breaks from my core reverberate in my mind as another round of nausea pummels me i roll to my back unable to bear the pressure on my stomach and stare into the glass eyes of the candy girls a succession of vomiting begins one after another bending over and spewing amber bile into the bucket I add my own to the melee, and wonder how much of myself has been lost already.
0: You will be beautiful.
6: He reaches into his pocket and removes several white sticks. Crouching next to the buckets, he dips one into the slough and twirls it around. Scoop, stir, dip. Like a candle maker working the wax. No... But speaking is like swallowing glass. My words are shards, slicing into my throat and drawing blood.
0: A few more of these and you won't remember what it was like to be forsaken.
6: Dip, stir, dip. He slowly pulls the stick from the bucket and shows me the final product. A red lollipop in the perfect shape of a marble. The artist titters, (laughs) an inhuman sound that's somehow more unnerving than the visceral lollipops. I pinch my lips together as he approaches, but the candy slides through easily, an eel slithering beneath the depths, indifferent to my tortured pleas. He lifts me effortlessly, puts me to my feet beside the others and steps back to admire his creation.
0: Marvelous! How can you possibly deny the wonder that you are when I've shown you all you can become?
6: Their eyes are glass, I think.
0: So are yours.
6: He holds up a mirror, framed in branches that are really the limbs of failed women, and forces me to gaze upon myself. Cherry red blood drips from my lips. The lollipop protrudes like a bony finger, a singular accusation of guilt. My skin is softening, becoming iridescent and shining at angles like honey. At the same time, I'm hardening. My body shrinks and gnarls into trunk-like rigidity.
0: Here, you will be beautiful. Here, you will be loved.
6: My eyes aren't clear, but close enough. What color they used to be, I can't remember. That, too, has been taken. Soon, they will be fractals. Yesterday or tomorrow, it makes no difference. Moving is difficult and sends jolts of agony railing up my spine. So I stay as still as I can Gently swaying in the night breeze I take comfort that we are together The candy girls and I The urgency I once felt to run A forgotten dream There's no need to run When staying is so easy The artist kneels before us Scooping and dipping and lifting stopping at intervals to adjust the buckets, wasting no drops of precious batter. I exhale a delicate cloud of gingerbread and orchids and wait for dreams to come.
0: In our final tale, we find ourselves back in the days of World War II, a harrowing time to be sure. Back then, children from the city were often sent to the country to be safe from bombing runs. Thankfully, there were often kind folks there to take them in. But in this tale, shared with us by author Gemma Amour, we learn that no good deed goes unpunished when a woman and her brother-in-law take in a strange refugee boy performing this tale are Erica Sanderson, David Ault, Penny Scott Andrews, Andy Cresswell, and James Cleveland. So when the chickens start dying, the milk goes sour, the cabbage gets blight, and the farm falls to ruin, perhaps the blame falls on Caleb. Caleb
8: September the 25th, 1940, Wednesday. A boy is coming on the train tomorrow from Portsmouth. He is an evacuee. His name is Caleb, and he is 12 years old. I also found a dead cat in the paddock this morning. These two things are not related, but I need to write about them. I have no one else to talk to around here, so this journal is the next best thing as dismal as that sounds. The thing about the cat is that when I found it, its underbelly had split open. Its innards had been pulled out, messily. The intestines made a long, fleshy trail in the grass. The worst thing is, I don't think another animal did this. It looks as if someone has gutted the cat deliberately with a knife and arranged its organs carefully upon the ground. For what purpose, I cannot say. I buried the poor thing as quickly as I could at the bottom of the paddock. When I did, I noticed its front left paw was missing. Snipped off, as with a pair of scissors, leaving a grisly, bloody stump behind. It makes no sense to me at all. Why would anyone do something like that to a cat? Perhaps it was one of the boys at the village playing a cruel game. Perhaps there is something more to it than that. Since the war started, people around here have gone a little crazy. The rules no longer seem to apply as firmly as they did before all of our men went overseas to fight. I don't believe in superstitious nonsense or omens, but if I did, I would say that today is not shaping up to be an auspicious one. I told Johnny about the cat when I returned from the paddock, but he seemed disinterested, preoccupied. He has been very quiet lately, especially since Edward was called up. I don't think Johnny can accept that the army took in Edward, but turned him down. He failed his medical because of his bad leg, and now his place is here with me, on the farm, fighting on the home front, instead of doing what his brother does. Johnny wants to be a proper soldier, as he calls it, but he can't be, not the way he is. I catch him sometimes, looking at himself in the mirror, studying his bad leg. Johnny had polio as a child, and it twisted his skeleton, did strange things to his muscles. He limps, and gets very sore and tired. Sometimes he is in so much pain that I have to gently rub his leg for him to ease the ache. It doesn't seem to help much. Nothing does. And now, this indignity... "'The army doesn't want you if you have a twisted leg, "'even though men are dying by the score. "'I don't see how it affects Johnny's ability to kill another man, "'but then what do I know?' "'I miss Edward, horribly. "'I miss his sense of humour. "'Johnny can be so serious, so intense, "'so angry with everything. "'It makes me nervous. "'Victory at all costs,' says our Prime Minister.' But did he have to take my Edward? Leave me alone here, alone on the farm with Johnny. The cost is too dear, Churchill. Call me unpatriotic, but you can keep your rallying war propaganda to yourself. In the meantime, the government are now paying families who take in evacuees, and we desperately need the money. So I'm preparing the house for the boys' arrival tomorrow afternoon. I know nothing about Caleb apart from his name and his age. I'm hoping he will be good company. Because I don't think I can cope too much longer with being all alone as I feel right now. It's like a constant pressure on my heart, squeezing down, pressing me flat, until soon I should be a thin, worn spot in the ground and people will pass over the top of me and not realise I am even there at all. September 26th, 1940. Thursday. Johnny has taken the tractor and gone down to the station to collect the boy. I am preparing a warm supper to welcome him to the farm. Something tells me he'll need it. I can't imagine the things the child has seen. The Germans have been bombing cities all over the country, night after night, for weeks now. The Luftwaffe are relentless. London is getting the worst of it so far, but nowhere seems to be completely safe. Every single night, after the sun goes down, so do the bombs. For hours and hours, they say, whole cities on fire. People dead everywhere you look. Portsmouth, where Caleb is from, was hit badly in August. Incendiaries destroyed schools, houses, churches, a hospital, the Guildhall. Caleb must have been right there in the middle of it all. Why his parents waited this long to evacuate him, I don't know. But eventually they did, and so he is on his way to us. Better late than never, I suppose. You will find a very different world waiting for him. Here on the farm, things are as quiet and tranquil as they ever were before the war. Dull, you could say. Well, aside from the cat. I can't stop thinking about the cat... ...about how its foot was cut off at the knee joint. It seems to me like there was more to it than just maiming the animal. Like whoever did it needed the foot for something. Like snipping off a bunch of herbs to use in a stew. Yes, it reminded me of someone collecting ingredients, as absurd as that sounds. Aside from the cat, everything else here goes on as usual. It is harvest season and we each have our part to play in keeping the farm going. Often I feel as if I'm merely going through the motions instead of living. Sometimes it's hard to believe there even is a war out there, except for the fact that Edward has gone, and our food is rationed and we can no longer afford shoes or petrol for the tractor. Once the tanks run dry, I don't know how we shall manage. Earlier, Johnny and I built an Anderson shelter near the pig pen, ...and made sure all of our windows were blacked out and taped to stop them from splintering if we get bombed. Apparently, splintering glass is more dangerous than the bomb blast itself, or so someone told me. Someone is always telling me something, though. War is a fertile land for gossip. Building the shelter was quite easy, really. The hardest part was digging the hole. I'm a small woman, and Johnny's leg hurt him a great deal... The going was slow, but we got there in the end. If the farm does get bombed, we have somewhere to go and hide, at least, although the shelter is small and cramped, and floods when it rains. Johnny says he will put some flooring down, but I don't see the point. The war could be over soon, and then it will just be a useless hole in the ground with some corrugated steel poking out of it. A relic from a time when the whole world went mad. As Johnny was digging... I noticed a fresh bandage on his right hand. I could see blood seeping through the bandage, but when I asked him about it, he brushed it off.
4: It's nothing. I caught it on the paddock gate.
8: I don't believe him. I don't believe him because the wound looks fresh, and our paddock gate came off its hinges four days back and is lying flat on the ground whilst we try and find someone to fix it for us. So Johnny is lying to me about the wound on his hand. And this just makes me feel even more alone than I did already. But also uneasy. Suspicious. Johnny went upstairs as soon as the shelter was finished and spent all evening reading and talking to himself in his room. This is a new development. I've never really seen Johnny take much interest in books or literature before now. But he was at it for hours, mumbling to himself until I dropped off to sleep. He watches me sometimes, with an intense, direct expression, as if he's trying to see into my mind through force of will alone. It makes me feel deeply uncomfortable. The boy cannot arrive soon enough in that respect. He can act as a chaperone, put some distance between myself and Johnny, put an end to any gossip as well. It's difficult for an unmarried man and a woman to live alone together without raising a few eyebrows... And I know people in the village will speculate about us now that Edward has gone. While the cat's away, the mice will play, as the saying goes. But what am I supposed to do? Johnny has nowhere else to go. He's worked on this farm all of his life, him and Edward. He's like a brother to me. And the brutal truth is that I could never manage things here by myself. I hope the boy is well-behaved. I'm not very good with children. I find them noisy and messy and chaotic. I like my house to be tidy, everything in its proper place. The boy might not be house-trained. City folk have different ways. The masses over on Primrose Farm have three evacuees. One of them didn't even know how to use a knife and fork properly, and the other keeps wetting the bed at night. The very thought of that makes my skin crawl. I have to stop writing now and cook supper There is a ball of nerves in my stomach And a feeling of dread As if things are about to change irreparably If Edward were here He would say Cheer up old girl Might never happen But Edward is not here Edward is away And so I shall do what everyone else Who has been left behind by this war does Carry on regardless Chin up and all that "'just like Churchill once. "'I feel very tired, though. "'September the 27th, 1940. "'Friday. "'The boy is very strange. "'When Johnny brought him back from the station, "'I thought a ghost had walked into my kitchen. "'He was so pale and thin "'and looked as if he hadn't eaten properly in weeks.' Within seconds of him coming into the room, I could smell an unpleasant odour, sour and unwashed. He had dirt on his neck, and his fingernails were atrocious, black and ragged. I swallowed back my disgust and surprise and pushed him towards the table. City folk, I thought, but kept it to myself. I noticed something dangling from his blazer then. He had a brown paper label attached to him, if you can believe that. A label, as if you were a parcel. What's this? I took hold of it. Caleb stood as still as a statue while I did so. The label read, Government Evacuation Scheme, City of Portsmouth. Underneath was the name of Caleb's school, his full name and his home address. I looked into the boy's eyes and felt pity for him. He'd been parcelled and sent away to the countryside like a package instead of a boy. I know it's for his own good. I understand that he's safer here. But seeing that label hanging from him felt like an insult. I ripped the tag off and threw it into the stove, angry and surprised at how upset I was. Then I steered him to his chair at the dinner table, and Caleb sat obediently, still clutching his suitcase. Eat first, and just this once, we'll skip the washing and go right to the food. But in this house, we wash before dinner, understand? This is a clean house. We are clean people. If you understand that, you and I will get along just fine. Caleb stared at the tabletop, unresponsive. I was being too stern. I cleared my throat. My nerves were getting the better of me. Now, I made ham and eggs for your supper. They haven't rationed eggs yet, thank heavens, and we have hens. And fried potatoes, which are rationed, but we manage. You'll eat well here. We grow everything ourselves, with plenty left over for the village nearby. Johnny can take you into the village tomorrow, if you like. Your new school is there, and I'm sure you'll see lots of your friends from Portsmouth. The boy said nothing. Then I caught sight of something small crawling around in Caleb's hair and flinched. Lice on top of everything else. The boy had head lice. I forced a smile onto my face, shuddering inwardly. It wasn't his fault he was so dirty. His parents were to blame. What sort of people send a child out into the world like this? I realized with some alarm that I was on the verge of tears and turned away just as Johnny came into the kitchen.
4: Do I get to eat without washing too?
8: He pulled off his boots in the doorway and limped over to the table. No, no special treatment for you. Now get, and don't come back until your face is red with scrubbing. Johnny glared at me sullenly as he passed me on his way to wash. I noticed something then, something that Johnny tried to hide but wasn't quick enough to. A second bandage on his other hand. Fresh blood seeping through, staining the white fabric. Johnny put both hands in his pockets then and vanished upstairs while I watched him go. Then I poured Caleb a glass of milk. When I set the glass in front of him, he stared at it, as if he didn't know what it was. "'What's the matter? Don't you have milk for supper at home?' Caleb shook his head, slowly. I sat down next to him at the table. He kept watching me, his cheeks hollow, and I thought again how like a ghost he was. He seemed so insubstantial, as if he might melt away at any given moment.' Not very talkative, are we? Perhaps the boy was having trouble adapting to things. He shook his head again, silent. I patted him on the hand, trying to ignore how filthy it was. Never mind. Plenty of time for talk later. Now drink your milk. He took hold of the glass and lifted it to his lips. He took a tiny sip and then another. A look of wonder fell upon his face and my heart lurched with sadness for him. He drained the whole glass in a fast minute, wiping his mouth with the back of his hand. He set it down and I saw his eyelids droop. The boy was exhausted. A moment later, his head nodded down to his chest. I sighed and called for Johnny. Johnny. Together we carried the now sleeping boy to his room and laid him to bed, filthy and unfed. His head sank into the pillow. Johnny and I looked at him for a moment as he slept. He was a handsome boy, underneath all that muck. Thin, but rather beautiful, with dark hair and high cheekbones. And he was our responsibility now, until things were safer for him back home. We watched him, and Johnny leaned into me, pressing his leg close to mine. I pulled away trying not to show how uncomfortable he made me. It's all about pride and dignity with Johnny. He has never handled rejection well, Hmm. as I discovered when I chose Edward over him. When we announced our engagement, Johnny got so blind drunk that he wouldn't come into the house for a whole week if Edward was there. Instead, he slept on the floor of the cowshed, in the middle of the bitter cold of January. A week later, my fiancé had gone to war, And I was left alone, with Johnny, as if the universe were playing some cruel trick on me. I am being unkind, I know. I can't seem to help it. I have such dark thoughts these days. I heard Johnny in his room again later, reciting something. I couldn't make it out through the walls, but thought it might be poetry. It had rhythm and cadence. It was ritualistic almost. He droned on and on, and I fell asleep eventually, and dreamed of Edward. Dead on his back, flies clustered around his mouth and nose, staring into the sky, hot sand under his head. September the 30th. 1940, Monday. The boy has a hunched back. I didn't see it when he came into the kitchen that first day because his clothes are so big and baggy on him, but it is definitely there. I discovered it when I ran him a bath this morning and made him strip. He peeled off his shirt and there it was, a pronounced hump around his shoulders at the base of his neck. my goodness, you poor thing. Here, let me... He is clearly very self-conscious about it. He flinched when I tried to run a flannel over his back, scrub away some of the dirt. I remembered then that I'm not his mother, and a twelve-year-old lad doesn't need help washing from a thirty-year-old woman. But there is something so vulnerable and lost about Caleb. He seems much younger than his twelve years. I left him to bathe alone, but the hump has shocked me. Am I to be completely surrounded by deformity and sickness? Am I the only normal one left? After his bath, Caleb and I sat together in the kitchen, and I combed his hair thoroughly with a fine-toothed comb, picking lice from the roots and rubbing lethane oil into the scalp to kill the eggs. Then I trimmed his hair with the kitchen scissors. When I'd finished, we studied one another, the boy and I. He looked like a completely different child. Still thin and undernourished, but more awake somehow, more alert. It was while I was buttering the toast for breakfast that Johnny burst into the kitchen, wild-eyed.
3: Milk's gone sour. What? The milk. This morning's milk, it's gone sour.
4: Come,
8: look! Confused, I wiped my hands on a dishcloth and followed him out to the milking shed. Caleb followed silently behind trailing me like a will-o'-the-wisp. Johnny milks every morning at five sharp, and then puts the milk into churns to take to the village on the back of the tractor, and then on to town to sell the rest. We've been doing things this way for years and years. Until today. Johnny waited for me next to one of the ten-gallon milk churns, and leave it off the lid. I smelt it before I saw it, and gagged. The milk was off. Not just off, not just on the turn, but coagulated, cheesy, stinking, as if it had been left out in the sun for days instead of collected only a few hours ago. But worse than that, much, much worse, was the colour of the milk was all wrong. Milk is creamy when fresh, yellowish when curdled. This was a dark, rotten brown. Like someone had taken the milk out of the churns and then replaced it with molasses. "'I don't understand. Are they... are all the churns like this?' Johnny nodded and popped the lid off the next churn to illustrate, and the one after that. The lids clattered to the ground with a metallic ring that set my teeth on edge and within moments flies amassed around us, a huge cloud of them buzzing and swarming around the sour milk.
3: "'I checked them all, all gone off, every last one.'
8: "'But what are we going to do, Johnny? You're supposed to deliver this in the next hour.'
4: We'll have to pour it away. There's no other choice. But,
8: but the money, Johnny. We'll lose so much money if we do that. He snapped
4: at me angrily. Well, we can't very well deliver off milk, can we? What are they going to do with it in the village? Make cottage cheese? That'll be soft. It'll have to go.
8: There was something so odd about him in that moment. Something on edge. Something strung tight. He looked... Did he look guilty somehow? Yes. Yes, he did. Like he'd had something to do with the milk going sour. But how could that be? For some reason, the dead cat came to mind. I swallowed. What was happening to Johnny lately? Should I be worried? Was I... was I safe, alone here with him like this? I continued to stare at him, and then I realised Caleb was doing the same watching Johnny with an owlish, wide-eyed and solemn expression to his face. Johnny spat then, turning his back on us rudely. As he did so, I saw another bright red patch of blood on his upper arm. Is he hurting himself? Why? He dragged the open milk churn over to a large drain at the end of the shed. I watched as he poured thick, congealed lumps of brown effluent into the drain, and sluiced it down with buckets of water afterwards. A whole day's supply of milk, curdled suddenly in the space of a few hours. A dozen ten-gallon milk churns all emptied down the drain. I almost cried, but managed not to. We lost good money today. Everyone in the village went without milk, not to mention the townsfolk and I can't figure out how it happened. I've never seen anything like it before. And there is simply no explanation for it. The milk just went sour. Later, I dreamed of Edward again. This time he was lying half in and half out of a ditch. One side of his face was missing, blown away, and I could see bone underneath. A rat chewed on the soft flesh of his earlobe. I screamed and woke, sweating. No! And heard Johnny, mumbling to himself in his room. The mumbling is louder this time, but I still can't make out any distinct words. It just sounds like... Like nonsense. Like jumbled nonsense. And so here I lie... Wide awake at three o'clock in the morning, muffled words in my ears and a stifling fear in my heart. I'm beginning to find it difficult to tell what is a dream and what is real life. September the 31st, 1940. Tuesday. Tuesday. I awoke in a fighting mood today. Determined not to let the melancholy get the better of me, I got up earlier than usual and helped Johnny with the milking before Caleb got out of bed. Johnny seemed in a better mood, although tired. Some of the tension between us had died down for a little while. At least it had until I asked him a question and spoiled everything. I heard you last night. I casually took hold of our best milker's udder and stripped the teat quickly and gently as my mother had shown me how to do. The cow lowed softly and hot, warm milk squirted into the bucket between my legs, hitting it with a tinny, ringing sound that always reminded me of childhood, when I wore pigtails and a penny and would watch my ma do the very same thing I was doing now. Johnny, who was seated awkwardly at the cow behind me, was silent. Then he said...
2: Oh? Heard me do what?
8: Reading to yourself in your room? What are you reading? Johnny was silent for a long time before he answered. Thinking. I knew then that what he was about to say would be a lie. Poetry. Johnny has always been a terrible liar. Oh, lovely. I like poetry. Anyone I know? No. I could feel his eyes on the back of my neck as I milked. The milk did not turn sour this time... ...and Johnny decided to run it into the village early to be on the safe side. My spirits lifted despite everything. We would make money today. Money we desperately needed. The milk going sour had been just a freak occurrence, I hoped... A one-time anomaly. I wish I could explain it, but couldn't with any rationality. I was just glad not to have to deal with it again. While Johnny was gone, Caleb woke up, and we ate a good breakfast of toast and blackberry jam in silence, as was becoming the norm. Then, because we had not yet had time, I helped the boy to unpack. It didn't take long. We opened his suitcase together and Caleb slowly laid each item he owned out onto the bed. Gas mask. Identity card. One vest. One pair of trousers. Two worn but clean pairs of underwear. One knitted pullover with ragged sleeves that someone had attempted to darn but made a poor job of it so that the yarn was unravelling. One pair of socks. One grey ragged face cloth, one toothbrush, one tiny sliver of soap, a pair of shoes that were scuffed and tied with string instead of shoelaces. I stared at the sad collection of possessions and felt a slow burning anger inside of me. It is not right that a person should grow up so poor, so desperate, so wanting for basic things. There was not a single item there that wasn't a hand-me-down, or borrowed, or broken, or repaired. There were none of the usual things I'd seen boys in the village play with. Catapults, comics, not even a book, or a pencil, or notepaper. I pursed my lips and kept my feelings to myself, but made up my mind to use my ration book points and get him some chocolate that week, if I could. If not chocolate, which was notoriously hard to get hold of in the village... "'then sherbet, something sweet, to have as a treat. "'After we put his things away, I gave him a chore list "'and sent him off to feed the chickens. "'He still hasn't said a single word to me, "'and if it continues, I shall take him to the doctor. "'It's not right for a boy to be completely mute like this. "'While he was gone, I tidied away the breakfast dishes, "'started writing another letter to Edward. "'I told him about the farm,' ...about Caleb... ...and about how late our prize heifer is to calf this year. Usually our cows give birth in the spring when all the other animals do... ...but Marigold fell pregnant much later for some reason. I'm worried that there's something wrong with the pregnancy... ...that the calf will not come to term. I hope it does because we've promised to sell the calf to the Masseys... ...on Primrose Farm for a decent sum of money. Before I could finish writing the letter... Caleb came back to find me. He wordlessly held out his hand, which was cut; the palm forming a little well into which he'd poured some chicken feed. He pointed at it, and I peered closely at his hand and then recoiled. <laughs> the feed was black and rotten. It had gone bad. Feeling a horrible sense of panic and a sticky sense of déjà vu, we hurried back to the shed where the chicken feed is stored. There, I found that all the bags had split open, as if the feed had got wet and swollen up, bursting through the sackcloth. The grain was everywhere, spilled across the entire breadth of the shed floor. No, 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 no. just look at it. I gazed in mute disbelief, and as I bent down to examine it, I realised with horror that the feed hadn't just spoiled, but was riddled with weevils and maggots. Oh, how can this be happening? I crouched there in the shed, staring at it all. The split bags, the writhing things in the feed, the black, rotting kernels, and felt nausea swimming up my throat. Then Caleb took me to the chicken coop. And there I found twelve dead birds lying on their backs, legs stiff and claws pointed to the sky. Except for our rooster. Our rooster... Our beautiful, proud boy had been decapitated. We had to burn the feed in the end, all of it. We tried to salvage the chicken meat, but found the flies had already been at them, so we burned them too. Johnny said nothing as he watched the flames go up. He stood with his arms folded and his back to me. There was another bleeding patch on his left shoulder. And a thought wriggled its way into my doubtful mind and took root there, like a dropped seed. Is there a curse on my farm? First the cat, then the milk, and now the chickens. Because, you see, two things concern me greatly in relation to that. A boy who came on the train. A boy who never talks, not ever, not a single word at all. This all started happening around the time he arrived. And a man who stays up all night reading poetry. A man who can't stop talking. I will lock my bedroom door tonight. October the 1st, 1940. Wednesday. Today I found our cabbage crop had blight. It was only a small crop, but all ruined nevertheless. Oh, and our pig, Daisy, has developed mysterious festering sores on her back out of the blue. The vet has given me an ointment for it, but cannot tell me what it is or what has caused it. He has worries of his own. His son's boat was torpedoed three days since, and there is no word of whether or not he has survived. That is not all. Our prize heifer Marigold still hasn't gone into labor. I am sick with worry. I haven't eaten properly for a good while. Or slept, without nightmares, or hearing Johnny chanting away to himself late at night. If he does it again tonight, I will go in there and shout at him until he stops. He still stares at me, and I swear I could see hate in his eyes. I am not superstitious. I am trying to not give in to the nonsense thoughts I've been having about a curse on the farm. But nothing else seems to make sense to me right now. "'What if Johnny is responsible for our bad luck? "'Or the boy? "'What then? "'I don't know, but it is making me ill. "'I am so angry at Edward for leaving me here, "'abandoning me to this life. "'To distract myself from the farm, "'I took Caleb down the road to see the doctor. "'The boy still hasn't said a word to me, "'not a single one since he arrived, "'and I am very worried about his state of mind.' He drifts about so quietly I sometimes fancy he will disappear into thin air, like smoke drifting away on a breeze. The doctor was very nice and very gentle and shook Caleb's hand when we went in, as if they were equals. Then he noticed the hump on Caleb's back and asked him to remove his shirt. When the boy did so obediently, I gasped. The hunched back was drastically more pronounced than it had been on the day that I'd given him a bath. He'd been hiding it somehow, under his pullover. But now, seeing him shirtless, it was undeniable. The hump was bigger, had maybe doubled in size, and had also moved. It had moved lower down his back, instead of just sitting at the base of his neck. And the skin. It looked as if something were underneath the surface, pushing up and out against the skin. I could see small dimples where there hadn't been any before. Like goose flesh once the goose had been plucked, only more pronounced. The doctor poked and prodded at the boy's back and sighed, telling Caleb to put his shirt back on, and motioning for him to wait outside while he spoke to me alone. Well, what's wrong with him? Why won't he speak? The doctor looked at me kindly.
3: "'I think that his speaking, or lack of, is the least of your worries right now. "'The boy is horribly malnourished, and that lump on his back, I think it is an abscess of some sort. "'Although without a proper examination in hospital, I can't be sure. "'The boy will need an operation to deal with it, soon, too, before it becomes infected.' Blood poisoning is a dangerous thing, and he is weak enough as it is.
8: I swallowed. He came to me from Portsmouth, covered in filth, Doctor. I've never seen anything like it. I thought it was a deformity, a hump. I didn't realise. The Doctor patted my hand.
3: It's not your fault. I know you were doing your best to look after him. No one will think any differently. I will call the hospital and see if we can arrange a time to take a look at him. In the meantime, don't worry about him being quiet. Some of these evacuees, they've seen dreadful things whole families buried under rubble, that sort of thing. Things a child shouldn't see. We're lucky, really, being way out here in the countryside. We don't appreciate how different their world has been.
8: I left feeling heartily sick of everything and everyone. This war is greater than the sum of my parts, and I feel I will drown in its waters before too long. October 2nd, 1940. Thursday. I cannot bear it much longer. We found Daisy the pig dead this morning in her pen. The festering sores had spread across her body, exposing large raw patches on her belly and back. When I found her, she was so swollen and bloated I was afraid to go near her in case she burst open, covering me in rotting pig innards. Johnny scooped her up with the tractor and took her down to the bottom of the paddock to bury her. The paddock is where I found the cat, with its innards all over the place. The paddock is where we burn the chickens, and our rooster. Johnny spends a fair bit of time in the paddock these days. And I have not received a letter from Edward for five weeks now. I am trying to remain calm about it. I listen to the wireless in the evenings, try to keep up with reports of British retreats or defeats. Edward is somewhere in North Africa, but more than that, I am not allowed to know. I comfort myself that we have not had a telegram yet, so he must be alive. Round here, people only get telegrams when someone is killed in action or missing. That is how the government chooses to inform us that our loved ones aren't coming back. A telegram. Everyone round here dreads the arrival of the telegram boy on their doorstep. In the village, they've started calling them the angels of death. I've seen women cross the road to avoid them, terrified of what news they might carry. No angels have darkened my door so far I wake up each morning and thank God for that at least But I am still walking around in a living, dreary nightmare A nightmare that wears on day by day, never ending And this is my life now Death, hardship, pestilence And a constant fear of getting a telegram And of Johnny Oh, and Caleb still hasn't said anything Not even my name Not once. I am completely alone. October the 6th, 1940. Sunday. I took Caleb into the village today to buy some pencils. I have discovered that he seems to like drawing, and I can just about afford it if we are prudent with things for a week or two. It was so liberating to get away from the farm. ...and I cheered up a little as we passed the church... ...saw people bustling around, going about their business. It's a peaceful village, and pretty. The trees are turning at the moment... ...the copper beeches and oaks showing their brilliant colours... ...and I felt a little weight lifting off my shoulders as the farm retreated behind me. While we were in the village store, I bumped into my friend Mildred. Mildred's husband Toby is serving overseas in Africa too... "'although she does not know where either. "'It's all top-secret, hush-hush, as usual. "'I wonder if Toby and Edward have crossed paths at all. "'I rather like the idea that Edward might see a familiar face "'amongst all the death and chaos of war. "'Mildred invited us over for tea, and I gladly accepted, "'desperate for some company and conversation. "'Some tea and a good gossip were exactly what I needed, "'and so I sent Caleb off for a walk up the lane,' whilst Mildred poured the tea. He went obediently, kicking his now polished and patched shoes through drifts of leaves gathering on the street. So? So? Have you heard from Edward at all? I shook my head. No. Mildred sighed and sipped her own tea.
6: I haven't heard from Toby either. Not for some time. Every day I think I might get a letter and nothing ever arrives. I just try and keep myself busy, try not to think about it too much. But it's the night times that are the worst. All the things you've ignored throughout the day just come down on you then, when it's dark.
8: I nodded, understanding exactly what she meant. Mildred fiddled with the handle of her teacup choosing her next question carefully. And what about Johnny? I avoided her gaze. What about him? Well, you know, how is he? How are things between you two? I sighed. (sighs) Tense. Strained. Most of the work of the farm falls on his shoulders now. The truth is, he... he isn't really up to it. His leg hurts a lot and he seems very tired. He's... he is bitter about not being able to join up, fight like his brother. He thinks it makes him less of a man than Edward.
7: Well, those two always were rivals, weren't
8: they? Especially when it came to you. I said nothing but blushed. Mildred patted my knee. Poor lamb. They sent the wrong brother off to war, didn't they? What a pickle. I smacked her smartly on the wrist. Mildred, that's a terrible thing to say. And then I started giggling, (laughs) unable to help myself. (laughs) And that's when a small girl in pigtails burst into the kitchen and announced that the angel of death was coming. Then she ran out again, her message delivered. Mildred and I froze, staring after her. The sound of a motorcycle puttering down the lane came in through the open door then. Oh, no. My heart sank. Telegraph boy. Angel of death. He met us at the front door. I knew as soon as I saw his face that it was not good news. He removed his cap and handed Mildred a telegram. She looked at it, her hands trembling, then at me. The telegraph boy left and wheeled rather than rode his bike away, a sign of respect. Mildred held the telegram out away from herself, as if it were a firecracker about to go off. She had this queer, sick expression on her face, and my heart sank further. Stay with me. Of course, I did. I put my arm around her and watched as she opened the telegram. Over her shoulder, I saw the words, deeply regret to inform you, and lost his life. And then Mildred dropped the telegram and sat down heavily on her front doorstep. I soothed her as she wept. Devastated for her loss. Selfishly, all I could think was, when is it my turn? When will the telegraph boy come and tell me that my Edward is dead? Later, I caught Johnny in my bedroom. (gasps) He stood over my dressing table, holding my hairbrush. In his right hand, he was holding a clump of my hair pulled from the brush. I stared at him, too afraid to ask what he was doing. He pocketed the hair as if it were the most normal thing in the world, and left, going into his own room and closing the door smartly behind him. The chanting went on until dawn. I did not have the courage to stop him. October the 7th, 1940. Monday. Johnny woke me in the night. Marigold had finally gone into labour, and it was not going well. The calf was stuck, a breech berth, and we had no way of reaching the vet. I hurried into a dressing gown and shoes. The scene when I got to the cow shed was pitiful. Our prize heifer, head lowered in pain, bellowing as she strained and pushed and tried to get her baby out. I could see the calf struggling in her belly and knew we were in a bad way. By now, you should have been able to see the calf's feet protruding from the vulva. There was nothing, just a sticky, bloody mucus that dripped to the floor. You'll have to get your hand up there. I rushed to Marigold's side taking a hold of her head and trying to soothe her. You need to turn the car. Johnny gave me a strange look then a flat level stare and wordlessly stripped off his shirt which was stained with dark yellow semicircles of sweat. I gasped. His chest, arms and back were covered in fresh red scars. It was writing of some sort jagged Arcane-looking symbols and shapes I've never seen before, scratched into his pale skin with a knife or needle of some sort. I felt faint, leaning against the cow for support. Johnny stared at me with his chin held high, defiant, his eyes huge and blacker than black. He limped over to the rear of the heifer, leaned against her rump, and pushed his hand inside her. His arm followed. Until he was up to his shoulder in a cow, and I could see him moving his arm around, trying to find the calf's head. I had seen Edward do this once before, and the vet, but never Johnny. Turning a calf while it was inside the cow's stomach is hard, back breaking work, and a man needs great strength to do it. Johnny grunted, and I could see his face turn a frightening shade of red. He was in pain, his arm trapped in the pelvis of the cow, but he didn't give up. He kept feeling until he found what he was looking for.
3: I got the feet. Get the rope.
8: Terrified, I went across the shed and found a thin, long rope looped around a peg. I made a quick slip slipknot noose and came back to Johnny's side. The scars on his skin looked deep and raw. I tried to ignore them, just for a moment. There was a greater issue at hand. If this labour continued much longer, we would lose Marigold. She was our prize cow, and losing her would mean losing a huge amount of money. Not to mention I was incredibly fond of her. Try to focus, I told myself. But Johnny's horribly mutilated skin was all I could seem to look at. Suddenly, Johnny pulled his arm back, making a horrible, drawn-out sticky noise, and a pair of tiny cloven hooves followed after him. Lightning quick, I looped the rope around the calf's feet and the noose tightened. Then, Johnny and I pulled. We pulled and the cow bellowed, and we pulled some more, until I thought the poor thing would split in two. And then suddenly, finally, the calf slopped out of the heifer and slid to the floor messily. I collapsed forward and leaned against the cow, exhausted, stroking her side and making soothing noises. Johnny stood silent. Okay. unmoving, staring at the newborn calf. Well done. And when I got my first look at the glistening new animal lying in the straw, I screamed. <laughs> the calf had two heads. I covered my mouth in horror and looked up to see Caleb standing in the doorway of the cow shed, dressed in pyjamas. He was staring at the two-headed calf, but not like I was. I was shrieking like a banshee, unable to fully comprehend what it was that I was looking at. He was calm, accepting, as if seeing this sort of thing were an everyday, normal occurrence for him. And was it me? Or was the lump on Caleb's back larger still? October the 8th, 1940. Tuesday. The calf died a few hours later. It was in terrible pain and made awful, piteous, double-voiced screams long into the night. In the end, Johnny shot it in both heads. Two quick reports, one after the other, with his shotgun. It made a terrible mess on the cowshed floor, and he is out there now, clearing it up. Then he will no doubt take the calf down to the paddock where he will dig a trench and bury it next to the pig and the cat and the chicken bones. I decided I could not bear the secrecy anymore or the chanting. While he was occupied in the cowshed, I used the opportunity to break into Johnny's room. His door was locked, but I picked it with a bobby pin. I wanted to know what he was doing behind closed doors night after night in my house I wanted to know what he was reading, where the chanting came from. I wanted to know what he was doing with my hair. And so I broke in, quietly, quickly, like a thief. And I found it, all of it. Writing on the walls, symbols and shapes, illegible nonsense mostly, written in Johnny's blood. A triangular symbol scratched into the floorboards next to his bed. A cat's paw, bloody and stiff, lying in the middle of it. Strange herbs and flowers that I didn't recognise, tied with black string, placed at strategic points about the triangle. The head of our rooster, hanging from a leather thong from the bedstead. A black book, with a thick leather cover, riddled with more of the same symbols... The markings match those on the wall and on Johnny's skin. Candle stubs, burned down low, littered across the room. And my hair, a bundle of it, tied around the cat's paw. There is a photograph of me, too. I'm holding hands with Edward in it. It was taken in the paddock, just before we announced our engagement. He is wearing his uniform, and I am wearing a smile. Our eyes have been cut out of the photo. Johnny has gone mad. Completely mad. Tomorrow, first thing, while he is out milking, I am leaving the farm and taking Caleb with me. We are not safe here, not anymore. I will go to Mildred's. I will tell her about the cat and the chickens and the pig and the two-headed calf and all the things in his room. Then I will telephone the doctor and tell him too. Johnny needs help. He needs a doctor. But that is a concern for tomorrow. Tonight, I am sleeping in the same room as Caleb. I've spread a mattress on the floor near his bed and pushed the chest of drawers in front of the bedroom door so that Johnny cannot get in. I do not expect to sleep. I keep thinking of the calf with two heads, screaming with two tongues. I keep thinking of the blood on Johnny's walls. I keep thinking of Edward's face, with his beautiful eyes cut out. Caleb still hasn't spoken to me. Despite all of this, not a single solitary word. The lump on his back is huge now, and getting bigger by the hour. I think actually it might have split into two separate distinct lumps, one above each shoulder blade. But I am almost certain that this is not humanely possible. And I must be imagining things because I'm exhausted and terrified and can no longer tell what is real and what is not. Perhaps I'm going mad too. For now, I hold the door against the dark and wait for the morning to find us. Alive, I hope. October the 9th, 1940. Wednesday. I must have dozed off because I woke in the dead of the night. (gasps) Caleb stood before me, taller than I remembered him being. He shook me gently on the shoulder. I stood up, leery-eyed, and Caleb pointed to the door. And then I heard Johnny on the other side of it. He scraped his fingernails down the wood of the door, cooing at us.
2: You're Edward. I've come back for you.
8: I pressed a hand to my mouth to stop myself from crying out. Johnny was so far gone into his own world that he no longer hated Edward. He thought he was Edward, and he was coming for me. Because I was his fiancée, and I finally belonged to him. Caleb and I locked eyes, then looked to the bedroom window.
4: Come on out.
8: His voice was light, happy, and it sounded very, very similar to Edward's. My skin
2: prickled. Pretty darling, won't you come on out? I've been away for such a long time. Won't you kiss me and welcome me
3: home?
8: I ran to the window and opened it. Outside, a fierce wind was gathering. An unnatural wind, unseasonably cold and bitter. It howled around the house, And as it did so, Johnny's voice rose in volume. He didn't sound happy anymore. He sounded peeved, his voice verging on shrill.
2: Darling, why won't you come on out and meet me? I have waited so long for you.
8: Can you climb? Caleb nodded mutely, and I helped him climb through the window. He put his foot out, felt around... Found the old cast iron drain pipe that ran from the roof to the garden and started to shimmy down it. The lumps on his back were enormous now, but they didn't seem to hinder him at all. He seemed strong, supple, and slid down the drain pipe easily. I watched him go, and then I heard Johnny bang on the door just once, smartly. I jumped and hoisted a leg out of the window.
3: Darling, come on out. Darling.
8: I swung the other leg out, twisted my body and lowered myself out of the window. As I did so, I heard Johnny bang on the door again, hard. Darling. It didn't sound human anymore. Something else was in Johnny, and it spoke through him. Something malevolent and strong and hungry... I heard a string of unintelligible gibberish Words I couldn't form or pronounce with my own tongue The same phrases repeated over and over again A voice roaring with power And then I realised I didn't have time to climb down the drainpipe I jumped I landed on my ankle which rolled painfully under me and lay there winded The heavens opened up and cold rain began to fall on my upturned face A hand came out of the rain and pulled me upright. Caleb. He pushed his head under my shoulder, and I draped my arm around his neck. And I could feel the lumps on his back, and they were moving, rippling, because of something alive in him. And I heard flesh tearing, and the protrusions burst through skin, soft and smooth, and impossibly light to the touch. Two giant, shuddering, gossamer-spun living things and they opened out behind me as we limped through the rain. And then I heard it. Michael. The air raid sirens began to wail. A terrible, whining, inhuman noise ripped out of the sky, and I could hear the distant sound of an engine stuttering high up behind the rain clouds and the wind. It was a bomb. It landed with a huge thud into the earth before us. I could barely see it in the dark, but the outline was just visible, black and cylindrical, half submerged in the mud of our farmyard, the tapered fin sticking out above the ground. And it was huge, bigger than I'd ever imagined, bigger than a man, and it creaked ominously. I had a moment to look up into Caleb's face, because suddenly he was taller than I, and his eyes glowed blue, and he was beautiful. I heard Johnny, screaming gibberish from inside the house. The bomb creaked again, as if the metal were expanding, and Caleb opened his arms wide as if to embrace me. As he did so, two enormous, glossy black wings unfurled, curving around me protectively. And then, with a roar, the bomb exploded. I survived. Caleb saved me. He turned his back to the bomb and covered me with his wings, and I survived. Huddled in his embrace as if I were the child, not he. I understood then that Caleb had been sent to me for a purpose. All that joking we made about the Telegraph Boys being angels of death. And here I have my very own angel, living under my roof sent to protect me, from Johnny, from whatever the darkness was that he'd let in. The bomb was a stray bomb, dumped by a German pilot on his flight path home to base. A thousand pounder, the bomb squad told me later. It didn't leave much standing. The farmhouse is gone. So is half of the cow shed, the pig pen... And, ironically, the Anderson Shelter, for all the good it did me. They found Johnny this morning, amidst the debris. He was buried under a wall that had collapsed on top of him, his head crushed flat as a trodden egg. I keep thinking about that, about whether it was quick and painless. I loved Johnny once, not the way he wanted me to, but I loved him. But that's just how it is these days... One loss amongst so many, one drop in a huge ocean. This war has taken so much from so many. Edward, Johnny, my farm. Men go away to fight and die. Those that are left behind still burn in the fire that rains down on us from above, or they burn in a fire of their own making a fire of lust and grief and jealousy and impotence and rejection. Either way, the end is the same, be it quick or long, painless or otherwise. After that, it's just dust. Caleb left me the morning after. Mildred took me in, and Caleb left me, standing on her doorstep, watching him as he walked up the road and away from me. Tall, and no longer a child, but a thin, beautiful man, with a pair of giant black wings hanging down the full length of his back. No one else seems to be able to see him now he has changed. And I wonder about that. About why no one asks me where Caleb is. Almost as if he never existed at all. And now I'm trying to... Wait. Caleb passes someone in the street. A man walking in the opposite direction. He is limping, using a crutch to walk, slowly, painfully along, and he has a patch over one eye and scars across his face. He wears a uniform, and there is an army duffel bag thrown over his shoulder. They pass each other, Caleb and the man, and they see each other, pause, smile. Then the man is almost upon me and I see with a fierce and rising joy that it is Edward. Edward? My Edward, come home for real.
3: Hello, old girl.
8: Edward! I throw my arms about him. Edward! Oh, my In the distance Edward. I can see a tall thin shape oh, made goodness. of darkness drifting along the road. <laughs> but now is not the time for the dead. Edward is home. Now is the time for the living.
0: The spells are wearing off for now, but the magic will linger. The shop will be open again next week with more spells to enchant you. Visit nosleeppodcast.com for show notes and more details about the people who bring you this production. And on their behalf, we thank you for being a supportive, sleepless member.